millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking finance and spending review, party conference season, some new research on graduate employability, and that hardy perennial that campers post to sale. It's all coming up. What a great time. More than anything else, it was just what a great time. What a great buzz that it was trying to pick the right posters and then just being really indecisive, etc. And then obviously I'm giving you an insight to my life as to why I chose those two in particular. Don't hold me against it. But, uh, don't hold that against me. But yeah, there you go. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us pin the poster on the policy wall. As usual, we have three fantastic guests. In South London, it's Diana Beach, Chief Executive of London Hire. Diana, your hire to the week, please. Hi, everyone. Hi, Mark. Um, well, I think, like many people, I'm enjoying getting out and about again, and I've been able to visit a few members in person this week. Um, but I'd like to give a particular shout out to Coventry University London, who, despite being 11 this year, are actually celebrating their 10th anniversary this week, because, of course, they weren't able to have a big bash last year due to the pandemic. So I think, having had two lockdown birthdays myself over the past 18 months, I'm going to be taking a leaf out of their book and pretend I'm two years younger from now on, too. So happy birthday, Coventry London. <laughs> and happy birthday, Diana. <laughs> and not you. far from Luton Airport, it's Ash Cardia, Director of Planning at the University of Leicester. Ash, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, everyone, and thank you, Mark. So I've got two, if I may, if I'm cheeky enough for my first time appearing on the show. The first is uh, on the birthday theme, really. So the University of Leicester's turning uh, 100, uh, so celebrating its centenary. And we've got the Welcome Freshers Week this week. And it's just great to see the campus bursting into life again, if I'm really honest. And the second is more of a personal achievement. I'm just really glad I've been able to refuel my car this week. And in London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your hire to the week. Um, I think for me, it was snatching the last rays of the summer sun uh, in an outdoor pool, uh, local, local, local to us, and uh, just thinking, thinking about everything, um, and, and thinking about how, how much I probably wasn't going to get to do that again for another little while. We start the week with things hotting up ahead of the spending review. Debbie, what's in front of our screens? <laughs> so uh, today is the formal deadline for submission to the government's comprehensive spending review, which is uh, due at the end of next month, uh, along with the budget. Um, and as you would expect, uh, a lot of organisations have been putting uh, the various asks um, and uh, reflections and contributing to the debate um, in a context where we know there's going to be some serious constraints on public spending, lots and lots of departments kind of fighting uh, over, over the, the envelope that is available um, and, and really all to play for. So this week we saw submissions from Universities UK and Universities Scotland um, in particular. Uh, setting out the huge contribution that universities make. So, so universities in, in England, um, we're talking kind of something like 55 billion annually to GDP. Um, and University of Scotland pulled put, put together a lot of evidence of, of a similar vein. 
Um, and then sort of setting up what, what funding the universities in those different areas will need to continue to be sustainable and thrive in the years ahead. And now it remains to, now, now we just wait and see if the government will pay attention. And there's a, there's, there's a, I guess a lot of people, a lot of organisations are, are getting their, getting their thoughts in early, aren't they, Diana? Because um, there's, a, there's a lot on the table, this spending review, uh, and, a, and a lot of different opinions about how the different pieces of the pie are going to be divided up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the UUK data was extremely helpful for the sector this week. I mean, it speaks the Treasury's language. It's all about money and economics, and it shows the economic contribution that our universities make to the country. Uh, And for us in London in particular, it's great to see that the capital's universities are confirmed as generating £12 billion of GDP and home to over 200,000 jobs. And actually, that aligns really nicely with our own CSR paper, which we're going to be putting out after this show, um, just to make the case for how London's hiring education sector can be driving up the levelling up agenda around the country Um, because we do know that London isn't flavour of the month at the moment with the government Um, but actually there's a lot that London can be doing um, for for its work across the regions be that through science and research or also international student and attracting that pipeline of talent Um, and I think another point as well um, is uh, the WP asks um, of course we echo UUK's call for continued funding for outreach partnerships Um, our Access HE division, which concentrates on WP amongst London's most underrepresented learners, does really transformative work with the funds it gets from UniConnect. And although the one-year funding that we received this year has enabled the team to keep on going and, you know, attract more and more people into HE, if we got that magic three-year funding again this year from government, that would obviously enable us to do much, much more to plan long-term and to just be more ambitious to enable more learners than ever before to to realise what we have if you like and to access higher education and succeed ash i'm I'm interested to know what 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 about this year's spending review keeps you awake at night and and your uh, you know your 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 director of director of finance colleagues i think for me i actually view it from a different point and i think we need to be careful as a sector as to how we play it given the significant pressures for fe funding in particular and let's not forget the negative rhetoric that we had about higher education before the pandemic We don't know the full details of what the comprehensive spending review is going to be, but I remember when the Augur review was in its conception uh, and and they were going out to speak to colleagues. uh, My biggest fear was actually the move uh, for certain entry tariff students going to an FE route instead of a HE route. The consequences of that for students would have been significant. Um, You know, if I was in that position and I was applying to higher education at the time, and I remember my A-level grades weren't fantastic, it could have had a significant impact on me and my career aspirations. So um, I'm viewing it from a a slightly more optimistic point of view in the sense that I'm hoping it's not going to be as bad as what it could have been previously, if that helps. Mm. Um, I I think that it's likely we're going to see some kind of minimum entry entry requirements, possibly at level two. Gavin Williamson hinted strongly at this before he was dispatch so so clearly things are going to be up in the air until an announcement but it does look it does look that way and that is that I, I think lots of people in the sector are going to be uneasy about it what are, Debbie what are the what are the politics here at play with the with the sector submissions to the spending review well I think I mean going, going to UK's particularly um because I think the I think <laughs> I think I think the relationship is slightly different in Scotland and and um you know, and everyone's sort of, you know, I, th- I think the Scottish government is sort of, is, is trying, trying, trying to find the money for universities that it would like to, but it, it, it is perhaps sort of struggling given the other kind of constraints that it's, that, um, it, it's a slightly, you know, it's a slightly different calculation. But I think what's interesting about Universities UK's mission is that I think to some extent there's 
quite a lot of concession on the teaching funding side. So there's a sense that the best that the sector can hope for is for fees to stay exactly where they are. Certainly, there's a bit of a uh, consensus building around the idea of saving money by reducing the graduate repayment threshold, which different you know different people have different views about the merits of whether that's the appropriate way to do it. Um, and certainly, a new UK set, uh, only asks without really making reference to minimum entry thresholds, only asks that no artificial restrictions are placed um, on on entry to to university. And, and and there's also a sort of sense that there's a, a deal to be struck here with government. I mean, you, uh, the, the submission talks about the sector addressing le- le- what it calls legitimate concerns with grade inflation, with, um, uh, you know, high quality, high value courses um, and, and with freedom of speech. So, it, it, or actually not freedom of speech, sorry, apologies, uh, on admissions. And so I think that there's a sense that uh, Universities UK feels that enough is settled there that there's no point in asking for more, um, which is bit, can be a bit unfortunate. But then over on the, on the, on the kind of long tail of other things that universities con- contribute in terms of local regeneration and growth, innovation, research, uh, the contribution to global Britain, there's much more ambitious requests, yeah, much, you know, much more kind of, you know, can, we have, can we have funding in these areas? And I think there's this really kind of obvious attempt to align universities with what is clearly, I think, a prime ministerial agenda, not necessarily a treasury one, although I think there's probably a question about how, how far apart the Prime Minister and the Chancellor are uh, on, on, on some of these agendas and how, how much funding will be, will be able to be put in place for things like, you know, the Science Superpower Global Britain. Well, yeah, let's come back to the, let's come back to the point about graduate repayment, because I think there's a few other things going on there. What about this question of, of the science superpower, Diana? I mean, a lot of the lines about science and research and R&D seem to have kind of tumbled off the the list of uh, list of things ministers talk about, you know, the kind of top lines, it, it, possibly possibly around the same time Dominic Cummings left number ten. I don't know. Um, you could probably read too much into that, but but has there been a shift away from those that kind of that conversation? I think there has, Mark, and your assessment is exactly right. Of course, regardless of what anyone thought of him, we did have a massive advocate for UK science in number 10 when Dom Cummings was there. Since he's gone, I think it's no coincidence that some of these big ambitious pledges to, you know, boost UK science have disappeared and time commitments have disappeared. So, you know, it's really worthwhile pushing government and reminding them of the 2.4% minimum pledge um, to invest in uh, UK R&D. I think personally, the best way that the sector can approach this is to show how pivotal UK R&D is, as Debbie says, to other um, elements of its agenda, particularly the levelling up agenda. Um, You know, R&D attracts, produces innovation, attracts investment, all part of what helps community regeneration. So I really do think that is the way to go and to get that sort of cross Whitehall consensus. I mean, does it, it looks to me, actually, I'm thinking about from kind of university finance point of view, it looks like probably the sector has been protected against the, the, the worst. So the headline fees aren't going to be cut, but there is going to be a kind of part of that grand bargain does mean changes to the, to the graduate repayment threshold, possibly making it less attractive. Um, do you, do you, and, and, and definitely saving the Treasury lots of money, do you think that it is a, a fair bargain? Yeah, I mean, I was reviewing all the literature and I was, th- I was thinking to myself, well, actually, 
what else could we do in this in this um, arena and, and what could be so significant that could improve uh, recruitment opportunities for students uh, you know in, in terms of education areas um, we're looking at the T levels we're looking at apprenticeships etc we're looking at foundation degrees all of these things and there could be the as I mentioned earlier the significant changes so I I do feel that it's probably a fairer move at the moment now I know that will probably upset a lot of colleagues uh, across the sector but again if you have a look at how hard the FE sector's seen it hit um, and again coming back to the rhetoric I do think that there is an opportunity there for for the sector to to probably just try and even the the the, the financial footing uh, for those across the sector so if we look at recruitment and do we think it's going to put people off like you said Mark um, I, I was under the impression that it probably would have done originally then I look back at when the the, the fee regime was introduced in 2012 and um, I remember there being you know some dip in recruitment for some institutions but a year after it recovered and um, I was then trying to remember reading um, the David Willits pamphlet earlier um, when Theresa May had increased the the threshold and how much of a noise that actually created at the time but then people forget about it so is this something that we're going to not necessarily forget about but is it kind of a, a small storm in a teacup rather than anything else? Well I'm glad you mentioned 2012 because David Willits has a proposal, doesn't he, Debbie, uh, out this week about uh, how the Treasury could save some money by going going back to Brown. <laughs> yes, well, so uh, in a, a pamphlet uh, produced by David Willits, former, for, former university's minister and current, current member of the House of Lords, uh, he proposes that the graduate payment threshold be reduced back to 21,000, which was, which was what uh, Lord Brown originally proposed back in 2009, um, which, of course, would be lower than the current median salary, which is, which is in the 23,000 pound mark and but i mean willits's point really is is that um you know he, he sort of says i've you know as, as an mp he was never approached by any graduate complaining about the burden of of, of repayment which i think is a little bit of a straw man argument because of course you know the people who, who might experience that burden aren't necessarily going to kind of you know show up in david willits's office um but 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 his kind of broader point is that uh the sort of certainly, certainly not with the low participation rates in his former seat <laughs> of havant as he, as he talked about a lot <laughs> But the, but the, um, you know, but but I, I think it's it's a sense that it's kind of it's 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 spreading the the the, the burden as fairly as possible, um, and 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 spreading it, you know, you know, spreading the pain over as long a time as possible, so that it is not kind of experienced, uh, certainly not experienced, you know, in in terms of uh, reducing access to to higher education opportunities, which he he makes the point are you know are, are spread across further around higher education. This is not about necessarily universities per se. Um, and you know, and that that would be a kind of a much more problematic uh, approach, essentially. And and when 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 you are faced with a time of constrained public spending, this is you know th- this this is the best best of several bad jobs. I think there's a few things to say about this as well. One one is one is of course that you know his his pamphlet doesn't take 92 pages merely to make this case. It is a really really interesting read in terms of just summing up where we've got to and and giving that perspective about the kind of political challenges, but also some of the kind of technical. Um, uh, and kind of policy issues that 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 you know the country has been wrestling with over the, over the over the last decade, and um, so I think I think it is very worthwhile read. You know, not, and, and the fact that he concludes that that it's a graduate the, the graduate payment threshold is um it, it, it's only really one, one one part of the picture. So anyone who's kind of interested in this whole kind of the broader policy debate, I think is is really worth reading. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of really fascinating. And I think I can say this now as well. So I was in private office and working with the university's minister at the time when Prime Minister Theresa May put the graduate threshold up to 27k. And I have to admit that totally blindsided us. We didn't see it coming. Um, 
and it seemed irrational at the time. Um, however, to reduce it now, even though I never believe it should have gone up, um, you know, in the current climate where you know, inflation's gone up, the cost of fuel we're seeing at the moment, the cost of um, produce, um, it's really going to hit graduates quite hard. Um, and of course, I will fly the flag for London. The cost of living here is already high enough as it is. To add, to add that little bit more on could really make the difference uh, between being above or below the poverty line. So I think there's a lot of factors um, that need to come into play, particularly and not least the current climate that we're living in at the moment. So if, I, if, if I could just come in there on that particular point, I think one of the one of the challenges that we have is also that we're going to see um, or we are seeing a demographic uptake in terms of the, the, the number of students who would be able to go to university over the next five, ten years. And it's going to increase significantly and therefore lowering that threshold. I mean, I get exactly what you've just said there, Diana, but I think lowering the threshold we will still as a sector still make the case for why higher education is a good place to be and a good place to come. And so I think from a political point of view and I should say I'm very non-partisan in all of these things but from a political point of view it's going to be well the, the sector makes a case for itself we can apply this we're going to save some money in the longer run uh, so it seems like a no-brainer uh, for, for I would have thought from sitting in in their shoes but I might be very wrong but there's also I think there's also a, quite a raw political calculation which I think is what kind of Diana's touching on is that um, who's who's likely to vote conservative at the next election what will be the things that will cause them to uh, think about whether to, whether whether they vote conservative? And so, of course, the calculation is in a, in a lot of red wall seats, the overall participation rate of higher education is a bit lower. So, you know, so, so that real, you know, so boosting FE, boosting skills becomes a bit of a priority because you know you're talking about local provision to support local industry and and all the rest of it. Although that you know that's that's probably not as sophisticated a calculation as it needs to be as it needs to be to actually make a difference in some of those seats. But I think that's a slightly different question. But it's also about, um, I mean, at the last election. And certainly, uh, it wasn't just students who were, you know, it wasn't so much. It wasn't students so much as graduates who were having that influence. So if if, if graduates uh, are, so it may be that the calculation is graduates or young graduates are already likely to vote Labour. So actually, it doesn't matter very much, especially in urban areas. It doesn't actually matter very much if we put a bit of extra burden on them because we, we've lost them anyway. Or it might be actually, given the, the sheer numbers of young graduates involved, we might be want to be a little bit careful about about making them feel the pinch too heavily because there is actually a case that some of them, you know, some of them may come over to our side. So I, I think a lot will depend on that kind of calculation as to whether there's a, a you know a voter cohort called young graduates who are perhaps struggling to get on the housing ladder and, and struggling with the cost of living um, and whether there's a calculation that a number of them might, might be persuaded to vote Tory if, if they felt that the party was really representing their interests. It's, it's a marginal tax rate, isn't it? So when you, when you tot up the, the graduate payments and all the other tax they have to pay and with recent changes to national insurance as well, so you can have people earning you know, not fantastic salaries paying, paying eye-watering sums of tax and, and surely that was going to filter down politically but I don't think, I think you're right, I think it's less likely to be political problem this year i think and whether or not you know any government any one government is going to get the blame for that i mean it seems very cynical doesn't it diana <laughs> absolutely i mean i wish i had a magic wand and a solution for it i mean like ash i believe that the the you know, the graduate repayment threshold should go down again. However, as I've just said, um, we do have to real th think of the real practical, real life implications on people. And, you know, 50% tax, <laughs> it does be be beg the age old question, is it worth it? Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. 
So I was interested in the extent to which there are clusters or are groups of universities in the UK. Um, and in order to answer that question, uh, I collected lots of information about universities and then boiled it down using a technique called principal component analysis into just a couple of features, um, which I could sort of look at and explore um, and make slightly more intuitive judgments about. Um, I then also employed some uh, what we might want to call unsupervised machine learning uh, techniques, especially if we're on LinkedIn, um, to see uh, to sort of corroborate uh, my initial judgments about whether or not there were groups. Um, and what I found uh, using both intuitive methods and, and also those more algorithmic approaches is that it's actually better to think about universities in the UK, at least, as on a continuum rather than as distinct clusters. Um, nevertheless, if you absolutely have to uh, have clusters of universities or, or split universities up, then actually boiling, uh, collecting information, boiling it down to some principal components and employing some kind of unsupervised machine learning algorithm is actually probably quite a good way of getting those groups um, and will tell you quite a lot about the sector um, compared to uh, other methods. So we're right in the throes of party conference season. Labour has wrapped up. And as you're listening to this, the Tory party conference is probably about to gather in Manchester. Um, and politicians have a funny old history of announcing things to get through a media round or uh, conference speech. Um, should we be nervous about the next few days, Dinah? Oh, good question, Mark. Um, I think, you know, we've just had the Labour Party conference and I think it's safe to say that there was hardly a mention of higher education there. So I think we came out relatively unscathed or at least lacking in some big um, ideas. Uh, well, Tory- well, commitment to increase spending on R&D. So that's, 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 that's a positive, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I suppose I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, fees and funding, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. rolling back on them. Um, too thorny, too thorny. Too thorny, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, though, we've got the big one coming up, the uh, Tory party conference next week. Um, yeah. I don't know, to be honest. Um, as I said, to Prime Minister Theresa May did blindside us with her big announcement on um, graduate uh, repayment. But I guess that didn't really play too much into the core Tory party. But that was a conference hands. speech, wasn't it? That was, that her, was, a that conference was one of speech. her set piece, set piece announcements for, for a speech. It, it was, yes. But I, I mean, I wouldn't expect, <laughs> I might be very, very wrong about this, um, the current Prime Minister to be doing that. He's got you know, let's be frank, far bigger issues on his plate at the moment. <laughs> COVID, Brexit, uh, just just everything. So um, I would think that he would be playing more to the big ticket announcements rather than that. But hey, look, I could be wrong. I have, I have a question about party conferences, Diana, because I mean, actually, uh, it's one of, the, one of the sort of strange things about how my career has panned out is that I've never actually had the chance to attend one. So as far as I'm concerned, there are these kind of like mysterious places where kind of, you know, conversations happen and deals are done but you know and I think one of the one of the kind of dangers I think perhaps is that uh, <laughs> this, is, this sounds awful but it's sort of exposing ministers to the rank and file members you know and I wonder to what extent being in that environment and kind of talking and you know and, to, and just and just to, you know talking to members and, and kind of getting kind of fired up to what extent do ministers come back from Tory party conference with a sort of renewed zeal or with a kind of sense that actually maybe they need to sort of shift shift their thinking or shift their rhetoric in some way because I could imagine I could imagine that happening just because of the of the of the climate but of course I'm talking from the position of total ignorance yeah no it's a good question I mean I don't know what it's going to be like this year because obviously things are a little bit different and the usual suspects aren't holding the big fringe events etc but normally and I think it's fair to say Mark you might want to chip in afterwards there's sort of two divisions at party conference you have got the core sort of inner circle um 
inside the pass zone events for for the party hardcore, if you like, and that's where the ministers will come and give the, you know, their, and, and their, the corporates that that pay for them essentially put their put their brand in front of people. Exactly. It's like a corporate freshers fair, really, isn't it? It's quite overwhelming. <laughs> um, but then I think one of the most interesting things happen, the fringe events are outside that secure zone when you've got, you know, the wonderful think tanks of this world, etc. you know, hosting hosting events. They invite, invite relevant MPs and ministers. And you can really get into the meat of discussion. And of course, the great thing about those as well, it attracts people who don't necessarily have the party passes as well. So you have a great opportunity to get involvement from the general public too. Um, but as said, I'm not sure how many of those will be going on this year i mean obviously i expect a few, fair few more at the tory party conference than there were at labor um but let's see i'm certainly looking forward to it anyway and i'm not letting uh, it dampen my spirits if only because i get to see all my sector friends again after 18 months one of, one of the things for me going to party conference is to hear the is to hear that rank and file party members and and what their concerns are because they do go along to these fringes and sector organizations kind of uh, put together a, you know, a very sensible kind of a conversation about a, a policy issue. We've got, you know, ones about universities leveling up and, and, and those kind of things. Um, and you'll get, you'll get rank and file party members. Um, and at, at the Tory end, it'll be, um, people put their hand up at the end and, and, and they, they don't, they don't ask questions about universities leveling up. They say, but surely none of this makes any sense because too many people go to universities or, you know, aren't universities just for training people to be more left wing. And um, it's always quite fun to see how, you know, the, the kind of very sensible vice chancellors and whatnot um, assembled on the panel respond to those. And it's exactly the same at Labour, but from the other end, you know, it's, um, isn't it an outrage that you know, anyone has to pay to go to university? It should be completely free. Uh, and the vice chancellors have been assembled, as I say, to talk about, you know, levelling up and the civic agenda and, and those kind of things. So it's always quite amusing to see that dichotomy. And it's also interesting to hear you know, what those kind of concerns are, um, whether or not, you know, these people are representative, I, I don't know. But um, that's one of the highlights for me. It's almost certainly quite helpful, isn't it, for a vice chancellor to be exposed to that sort of, you know, thinking in the flesh, because of course, you, you sort of, you see it represented in the media, and you never know to what extent it's sort of stylized or performative, or whether it's actually a sort of deeply held view. And of course, media is quite good at representing deeply held views. But I think I think there's also something about because although we sort of we sort of said oh well you know HE there's not a lot of debate about HE um, certainly at Labour and, and and we're not expecting kind of enormous set piece stuff at, at, at Conservatives I think there's something really quite important about the sector tuning in to some of those political ways of ways of thinking those moods those those you know the, the, the you know the emotion of the conference because I think it, it's even if it's not even if there's not a kind of specific policy debate about exactly how we fund universities in the future there's still going to be you know waves and 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 a sense of, of kind of where the politics is going and how people are feeling that I think will we'll speak to how people will then feel about you know particular practical policy issues like university funding. Indeed and I'm really interested to see this year about how the online d- dynamic sort of changes things a bit as well because for many of the fringe events you don't actually be, have to be physically present in uh, Manchester some are being streamed online and that gives it a little bit of longevity but also it allows other people to sort of chip in from, from around the sector and indeed other sectors as well so I'm interested if that sort of changes the dynamic a bit let's see eh. Mm. And we've just got to watch for those set-piece announcements. As you, as you said, that, that Theresa May uh, th- graduate threshold um, change was just for a conference speech. I vividly remember Ed Miliband announcing uh, Labour's commitment to reducing fees to £6,000, not even for his speech, but for the pre, his pre-conference interview with Andrew Marr, just to carry, just to carry him through that afternoon. Um, and that, that policy stuck around for years as, as a result. And that's how, you know, sadly, that's how some of these things get made. I'm just going to indulge you one more anecdote. But my favourite party conference I've been to, I've been to dozens and dozens now was Labour Party Conference. I couldn't tell you which year. Uh, I was, um, 
I was the policy advisor to the uh, Shadow Universities and Science Minister, then Shabana Mahmood, uh, MP for Birmingham Edward, now doing great stuff actually um, in um, Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet. But um, she was taken ill on the first day. And we had a whole series of engagements with the sector and with kind of party stakeholders and things about higher education. They, people would look at me with sort of tortured faces and say, you know, we can't, £6,000, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't afford to do that. That's going to, you know, that's going to, really, it's going to put our universities in a lot of trouble, even though we, we've, you know, we kind of knew that this was a, this was kind of a phony war policy, really. This was just, you know, something, as I say, done for a, um, done for a media round, uh, and I was unlikely to stick. Um, but um, yeah, Shabana was taken ill that year. Um, so I got to be Shadow Universities and Science Minister. That was so much fun. I got to, I got to take all these meetings. Um, I even got to speak on the panels on, on her behalf. Um, and uh, I reversed loads of, loads of official party policy. And I made up loads of new policy that I, that I, uh, fancied, um, I fancied putting on the books. No spending commitments, because that was drilled into me. But I had policy on all sorts of things. I think we... I think I committed uh, Labour Party. Should we win that, that coming election to doing a, a full credit transfer system? No one, uh, no one picked that up, sadly. But um, yeah, I made I made all sorts of policy because policy is literally made by people just talking on on panels, and a lot of that happens at party conference. That's that's kind of one of the reasons why I love it. But there you go. That's my thank you for indulging me. Jeez, so I just, missed just... the trick. I missed the trick there. I should have slipped something in my minister's food. Surprisingly, <laughs> yeah. oh, not, just... not not poisoning your minister, but you know, <laughs> sort of making policy. <laughs> <laughs> and just just on that, Mark, was that was that then the the kind of the, the starting point for Wonky? Then really, so one of the best things to come out of party conferences is that from that point onwards, you thought, right, I'm going to create Wonky. Uh, yes, it was around those those times, but I I couldn't really we couldn't really do much with Wonky because anything I would say was could essentially be taken as Labour Party policy. So Wonky was Wonky kind of existed in its very early form, but it was kind of a bit dormant at that point. <laughs> Just because if I was to actually put pen on pen to paper rather than say things out loud at you know in a sweaty hotel room, uh, I definitely would have lost my job. I was just gonna add one more thing to the conversation really and it's fascinating to hear uh, Mark yourself and then Diana talking about these conferences because I always view it again from what's on the TV rather than understanding anything else. And I play a little game if I'm really honest. So uh, you always see it as an opportunity for for the party to applaud themselves. And uh, the game I play is that who's standing up and applauding that really doesn't want to be standing up and applauding. And you you can see some fantastic faces on show. Yeah, or, or sitting next to people they really don't want to be sitting next to, but they have to. They have to kind of <laughs> exactly for the camera. Yeah, uh, yeah. Always a always a fun game. Now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with Mike Ratcliffe. So it was David Watson that coined the term the Quality Wars to describe the battle that happened over. Uh, the, the new setup we had in 1992 and proving to the government that the quality of what we were doing was good. Written into the 1992 Further and Higher Education Act was a provision that every of the, each of the funding councils had to assess the quality of education provided in institutions for whose activities they provide or are considering providing financial support under the Act. And so the three funding councils, England, Scotland and Wales, set about thinking of a way they could do this. This was really quite a complicated thing uh, and had been tried before, particularly the link towards funding. But uh, one of those things that emerges from this is an elegant system for looking at the assessment of the teaching of quality. And for those of us at the time, Circular 393 was the thing that ran our lives because it set out a new system, teaching quality assessment. At first, we had four subjects to look at. Law was the first one to go first. uh, And we had to provide a self-assessment. We sent these into Hefke, who had some data to check in the background, and we all bid 
saying whether we were excellent, satisfactory, and potentially we could have said we were unsatisfactory, but Hefke had agreed that that was a rule that they could do. So we would bid for excellence, and if you looked like you were probably excellent, they'd give you a visit and come and check. They might also sample if you said you were satisfactory, but they might also leave you alone if you were satisfactory. A game theory option that started to play out. So you sent in your paperwork in advance, you set up a base room full of lovely, interesting information, and you set about preparing for people to come and observe your teaching. The visit took days, but it took weeks of preparation to get all of this ready. And at the end, you got a score. An exciting piece of theatre where your peers would come and tell you what they thought about things. And this proceeded fine, except there were some glitches. The anthropologists had a clever idea. In fact, what they did is, of the small number of subjects that got visited, they all became excellent. Hefke were not amused. But eventually came to the Deering report. And the idea was to take this away from Hefke, and Hefke's would subcontract it to the new Quality Assurance Agency. And so we got a new game, Subject Review. Here we provided a graded profile. So there was still visiting, but now much more of it. No getting out of it by claiming to be satisfactory. Everyone would get a visit. Now you got a score across six areas. Marks out of four, which gave you an exciting range of outcomes. Much more fun for the league tablers, and much more fun for that bit of theatre at the end, where they slowly read out the scores across your six profiles. Somebody adding them up as you went along to see whether you got to the magic 24. If you hadn't, Obviously, there were you know, glances across the room as to whose fault this was. And then you'd read the feedback and wait for the draft report to come. This is a very exciting process and went on and on and on, drawing up huge amounts of resource, but not having a huge amount of impact. It probably made sure that the sector was paying attention to these things. And I certainly remember uh, having to explain learning outcomes to one or two professors so that they could explain in turn to uh, the visiting academics what was going on. But eventually it was killed off. David Blunkett was persuaded this wasn't a great use of time. And instead we had uh, an exciting move to teaching quality information, which, for those of you hanging on the outcome of the NSS results or the NSS uh, review, um, that's where that comes from, an ability to provide information across the sector on the quality of provision. There were some improvements that happened. There were some links to funding through the Fund for the Development of Learning and Teaching and the subject centres. There was some prestige in getting those high scores um, and the whole thing ticked along. The key message, in retrospect, is that the pre-92s were not as bad as teaching as the sector thought they might be and that the post-92s were not as bad as the media thought they might be. So everything was fine. Now we look forward to whether a new variant of subject theft might come along and do the same thing, but without the visits. Probably it'll have the same impact. The sector's quite good at teaching. Now this week we've had some really interesting new data about graduate employment prospects. Ash, talk us through it. Thank you. Um, so the Graduate Index um, was uh, produced by IAF, IFF Research and uh, provides a new way of looking at the graduate experience uh, that goes beyond kind of skilled employment and salary data. Um, so a quick highlight for those of you that hadn't caught up on it, the index is designed to look at broader outcomes of graduates, measuring the success in seven areas of social capital, civic engagement, confidence, resilience, quality of life, 
fulfillment and career progress. So I'm personally delighted that this has come to light as I feel passionately about the value of higher education beyond just measuring graduate employment and the salaries that they bring with it. Uh, I'm not so sure on the seven um, social and personal measures that we just described there uh, and the full extent of what um, I might like to see that could come through. I'm not really sure, but we could spend hours just defining these categories alone. So, you know, let's not focus on that. Um, but I just wanted to give um, an anecdote, if that's okay, and a specific example of what I've seen uh, at a previous institution um, and the reason why I want to see us move beyond just the graduate employment and then the salary associated to it. And it's, um, it may not be representative across the sector, but I still think it's an important example. So this particular institution recruited a high proportion of local female students of South Asian heritage. In some of these South Asian communities, the social pressures on the females to marry not long after leaving education and or there are barriers to continuing education or seeking employment after they've graduated. In the current way in which we capture the data around employability, whether that's graduate outcomes, Leo, or previously the old Delhi, these students wouldn't necessarily contribute towards a positive score against the institution at which they studied. But let's be honest, the, the, the learning and teaching and the education experience that they've had has obviously transformed their lives, given them confidence, etc. And this is why I welcome the Graduate Index, as it recognises that there's more to a degree than just the job or the money at the end of it. Uh, it's an interesting piece of work, isn't it, Debbie? What, what jumped out at it for you? I think, yeah, and I think the kind of what's interesting of course is it's it's, it's by uh you know it's a it's a, pri- it's a private company I, IFF, iff research are sort of doing this as a, a in a speculative way to see if the sector wants to kind of pick it up and and, and run with it um and uh and it's responding to a kind of long-standing conversation i mean ever since ever since graduate salary data started being published or there's been a conversation about that the association of, of of value with salary um you know there have been calls to say let's do this in a more um in a more holistic way, and, and finally somebody has, and that's you know, and that is that is what I think is interesting. So you may you may think that you know these are not the right measures, or 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 that there's a better way to do it, or that you know you, you know there's there's a lot of debate to have over, over that sort of thing. But the fact that someone's actually made a stab at it, I think, kind of opens up space for for other others to try and kind of opens up the debate, which can which can only be a really positive thing. The other thing I think is that jumped out at me was that you know so. IFF research have done some work splitting up the data by by mission group, which you know <laughs> we, there's almost a little bit of kind of like is that the right way to do it, um, but also by things like um, you know by gender, by level of study, by different subject of study, and what really jumped out of a wonky was was the diversity around subject of study, um, and the differences are not enormous. They're, you know we're not talking kind of huge, glaring gaps between the level of confidence of a you know someone at life sciences graduate and history graduate, but there is there is there is there's, there's different patterns, and I think it opens up quite some potentially quite interesting conversations for educators in those subjects. The other thing that jumped out at me was the kind of comparatively low scores around civic engagement. And I think that's something, because I think some of these concepts, such as confidence or resilience or fulfilment, are both a bit more nebulous and a bit less in universities' control. But something like civic engagement is something that universities can actually and do work really hard to kind of develop and instill in their graduates. So I think if I were a university that prided myself on doing that sort of work, I might be looking at some of this data and thinking, okay, well, what you know, what 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 can we understand about the extent to which this is working? How might we measure this ourselves? How might we um, use some of this data to inform how we develop this practice? And I think that can only be a good thing as well. 
Yeah, I very, very much agree with your assessment, Debbie. I mean, this is absolutely a great start. Um, we've known for a long time that we need to move away from the definition of a value being just monetary terms and graduate salaries. So although we might not agree that the, the seven um, sort of factors that are assessed in the study are the right ones, it's a great start. And, we'll, you know, they put it on the table for us to run with it as a sector. Um, although I do you know, say, and I hammer on about this quite a lot, that wh whatever we do, we need to make sure we've got the anecdote as well. So we've, we're telling those stories. There's really, truly transformative stories. And I've heard a few myself this week of some of the WP initiatives in London and how HE really brings people up and transforms people's lives. So if we get those in as well, I think we're onto something. You can find this piece of work uh, in the links in the show notes. We had a really interesting article on the site this week about the poster sale, which is going on across Freshers' Fairs all over campuses, all over the uh, the country with some surprising insights. But first of all, uh, I'm interested to know what you put in your, what you put on your walls uh, when you were students. Uh, Diana first. Oh, put me on the spot. Um, do you know, one of the best posters that I ever bought when I was a student, I was in my first year, was a real large map of the UK. And I got some stickers as well. So anybody who came in my room, I got them to put a spot on where they're from. And I've still got that. I kept that for my whole four years. And it's amazing. I should dig it out. And it just really helped, you know, form a sense keen. of cohesion. That is, that yeah. is very keen. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about you, Ash? Oh, mine's a, a real mix, if I'm really honest. Um, so at the time, so obviously would have been the first time I lived away from home yeah. uh, and didn't know how it was going to be. So sadly, I got one of those footprints in the sand ones, for those of you that remember that. Uh, the kind of, you know, you, you weren't alone. I carried you through the dark Aww. times. Except, I know it's so sad, isn't it? I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, but, but at the same time, and don't ask me why, this is showing my age. I got a Scarface poster with the Scarface <laughs> on the $1 bill. Uh, and, you know, it just... Yeah, why? I'm looking back on it thinking, why on earth did I do that? Had you even seen the film? I, I'd only just got old enough to see the film, exactly. So, you, you, you know, it's one of those. Figure, figure out who you were. Are you, you know, were, are you a kind of, you know, a, a beautiful soul and, a sen you know, sensitive and vulnerable or are you kind of hard as nails? And I guess you're kind of trying to figure out which, which it was. Yeah, it's quite a big spectrum, isn't it, really? So um, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I remember reading the article on, on the website and I was just reminiscing straight away to exactly what we've just discussed. And I just thought, what a great time. More than anything else, it was just, what a great time. What a great buzz that it was mm. trying to pick the right posters and then just being really indecisive decisive etc and then obviously I'm giving you an insight to my life as to why I chose those two in particular don't hold me against it but uh, don't hold that against me but yeah there you go don't students still choose Scarface I mean despite the this is apparently apparently so yeah the, and the, Pulp you know, Fiction the, the, the mm. movie is kind of ages ages old some of them kind of may not if, if they've seen it it will feel like a sort of vintage viewing experience and yet yet they still choose Scarface it's quite so the theory from 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 the people who run the poster cell is that they have seen lots of kind of popular tv shows with, with kind of with halls and, and dorms in America and, and what's on the wall. And they choose things that look like a student hall's room, even if they haven't actually seen the film or have a relationship with it. I think, I think also it's still one of the most kind of, it's, it's just kind of culturally known as one of the most kind of violent films, you know, you know, the sort of, the sort of cultural cachet around it. I think, you know, you are trying to kind of make a point about, I mean, it's, I mean, essentially, I think it's a way of saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not vulnerable. I'm not scared, <laughs> you know, when, of course, everybody is terrified and, 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 and vulnerable when you, when you start university, that's just how it is. You know, it sort of, it sort of makes sense, I think, to kind of, it's like armor, you know. Mm. Well, and as the, you yeah, go on, Ashley. No, sorry, Deb. I was just going to say, as you, and as you can imagine, Debbie, then when some one of you know you new dorm friends or you know resident friends walk in and they see the Scarface post, they go, "Yeah, cool, that's really cool, Ash." And then they see this footprint in the sun, they go. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
real difficult moment in, in, in time, isn't it, really? But no, it's brilliant. You know, but, you need to tell us what you had on your wall now, Mark and Debbie. <laughs> Go on, I Debbie. Had, I had... Um... I had, well, I had, I had a few things. I did that thing, you know, what, what was it, you know, five for a tenner or something. So I kind of stocked up. But the one that, the one that stays with me is I had, uh, and again, you know, completely generic Van Gogh's, uh, pavement cafe. Um, and I think there, there are two things going on there. It, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a beautiful picture. You know, there's a, there's a pavement cafe. There's, you know, the stars are kind of Van Gogh style stars. It's very kind of romantic. And I think I probably, it was probably because I wanted to be seen. I, I studied English literature at university and I think I wanted to be seen as kind of arty and romantic. I had a kind of long, long leather coat and long red scarf and I used to sort of float about talking about literature and kind of, the, you know, that was, I was, I was really kind of investing in that bit, bit of my identity, I think, at that time. So yeah, it was very much about, yeah, who, who I was going to be at university. And trying to represent that. And I just had the West Wing because I was absolutely obsessed with it at the time in my first year. So, and I can I can tell you on good authority that Mark still has the West Wing poster. I was just going to say nothing's changed probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can assure you my Scarface poster is no longer on the wall. <laughs> Maybe somewhere else. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I've expanded my map into a map of the world rather than just the UK. You know, uh, times have changed. Oh, that's deep, <laughs> deeply symbolic. Deeply symbolic. <laughs> The question not answered by this blog, though, was where do they go? The campus, the campus poster sale people, they, they show up once a year and they disappear into the night. And you just you never know where they go or what they do the rest of the year. This is the, this is the, this is the riddle that will remain. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Debbie, Ash, Diana and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.